Good morning. Welcome to Awaken. Man, I love you guys. It is so good to be here with you today, even on a rainy day, to see that you brave the craziness of this weather to join us. So this past few weeks, it has been, uh, we've been as a church in the midst of a series that we've entitled Missing God. And the title's a bit deceiving because we're not actually missing God. The idea is that we're going through how, as a church, how to be equipped and how to listen to God. But that's kind of the point of the title, right? That all too often we find ourselves not listening to God, not listening for God, or not even knowing how to. And so in that sense, we do miss him, which in of itself is bad enough. But then there are also, for some of us, we understand that it goes even further than that for us, is that for some of us, we don't even miss missing him. And put more simply, as Christians, oftentimes, most of us would be able to say in here that we admit that we don't always hear God's voice in our lives, but then there are a few of us who don't really even think about it. Like, we don't even care. We don't even miss him. And that is also a challenge. So this past week at the Lou house, we were having an interesting conversation over dinner. One of my daughters mentioned that she was struggling with her times with God because her times with God just felt stale like a ritual that she was just kind of going through faithfully, but not really getting energized by it, not really hearing God speak. And I told her I can, I can totally relate because I've been through a number of seasons where I felt the same way. And I thought it ironic, um, maybe not coincidental, that we happen to have this discussion now while her dad is teaching on this topic of how to hear from God, how to listen to God. And our conversation that night was much more thorough and in-depth than we're going to have time to discuss today. But it wasn't as simple as just telling her, sweetheart, you just need to be faithful and read the Bible more. You need to, to you should go back and listen to dad's teaching from last week, you know? And it's kind of like, you know, I had the luxury of being able to say that because I realized that the challenge she was facing wasn't simply a mechanical problem. And that's kind of what we did last week is we walked through the mechanics of how to listen to God. What is he saying? How does he say it? How do we hear um, from him, right? And what is the content of what he's sharing? But uh, in many ways, when we shared that, when I shared that and taught that, it's, it's looking back on it afterwards, I was like, man, I don't know if that was the best way to go about this. Because it's kind of like teaching you listening skills, right? When if, if you want to learn to be a better listener, I teach you listening skills that like sit squarely, look someone in the eye when you talk to them, listen for key emotions and listen for key details and use empathic responses and avoid advice giving. And I can teach you skills and mechanics are helpful. But listening to another person involves more than just doing the right things. It has to begin with wanting to listen to the other person, wanting to understand the other person. If you don't have the wanting, then all the mechanics in the world isn't going to help you really listen to another person. And I shared that I think that was what my daughter was missing. The realization that a huge part of really listening to God has little to do with the mechanics of reading the Bible and prayer and and uh, seeing God in creation and being involved in the church. There has to be, no, listening to God has to begin with desire. It 
has to begin with anticipation of us wanting to hear from God. Our hearts have to desire him. And that's something that has to come from you. That's something that no training, no equipping is going to be able to do for you. And I realized after walking away last week and going through and processing teaching, it's like, man, I said it, but I wish I would have said it a little louder, a little more clearly. If you want to hear from God, it begins with your desire to hear from him. You have to want to. And if that's in place, then you and he will find a way. And as a church, we'll come alongside and we'll help give tools to make that happen. But we can't replicate or create that in you. So what we did two weeks ago is we talked about this idea of noisemakers and how our lives are not lived in solitude. And we oftentimes live our lives in this mall-like environment where there are just many different voices that are competing with God's. And, and like when we're at a mall and we're listening, we have taught ourselves how to, train, how to tune out other voices. But we haven't always done that in our Christian faith. We haven't learned how to tune out the, the, the non-voices, the voices we shouldn't be listening to and just focus on the one from God. And so that was what we spent our time doing two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about the idea of what it looks like to be able to, how he reveals himself when he speaks, the way he speaks through the word, through prayer, through our past experiences, through his creation, through the church and the body of believers. We also set up our trifold board because we've tied all this together. That Part of the reason why we're equipping you to hear and listen from God is not simply a skill we want to take into our own lives, but something we want to learn to do as a church especially in regards to what God might want to do with our future, Church Plan 2020 and all the other stuff that's associated with that. And to invite you to share those thoughts. And we had an agreement, did we not? That as leaders, we're going to take the time to equip and empower you to listen to God. And for your part, you're going to seek him. And when you do and he speaks, you testify about what he said, especially in regards to Church Plan 2020, and that's what the Trifold Board is for. I'm excited. I appreciate the thoughts that have been shared already, and we're kind of weaving them already into our planning. This week, our focus is going to be on God's will. What is God's intention? What is God's heart when he speaks to us? If you're a Christian, if you believe in the Bible, it's clear that God speaks. We shared a number of different passages over these past few weeks revealing how God speaks to us according to the scriptures and, and that uh, the challenge for us as Christians is not only understanding how to listen, but even as we're going to walk through a little bit more today, what to listen for. And I'll share why this is important by taking us through a couple of little exercises. So... Uh, I'm going to run through an exercise, so just kind of pay attention and, and see if where we end up on this. So you're the pilot of a plane. When you take off, you have 200 passengers. So pay attention. You have 200 passengers. At the first stop, 30 passengers get down, disembark from the plane, and 47 board the plane. The plane then takes off again. It arrives at the next airport, and at the next airport, 50 people disembark. And 89 people board the plane. The plane takes off one more time. I know some of you guys are glazing over already. It's like numbers, numbers, you know. So 
the plane takes off one more time, and after a few hours, the plane finally arrives at its destination. So the question for you is calculate the age of the pilot. When you know the answer, I want you to just raise your hand and just tell me a number. Of course. 17. Anna? I'm sorry? 29. Yeah. <laughs> I question your calculation, my dear. So, and then, Matt, what'd you say? I'm sorry? Very good. The answer is your own age, right? Because I said you're the pilot. All right, so I know. You're thinking, how did they come up with these calculations? And Danielle, if that's your age, and you and I and your mama have a conversation that we need to have. So, all right, so here's another one now that you're primed a little bit. So, William works at a butcher shop. His height is five foot six, and his waist is 36 inches around. A little bit bigger than mine. So, uh, he works 10 hours a day, and he earns $200 a day. What does he weigh? You know, you've been listening to my dry run. What does he weigh? Does anyone have an answer? Yes. He weighs meat because he's a butcher. Okay, right? I know these are fun little exercises, and maybe some of you are like, this is why I don't play these games, and so I'm just going to sit here and observe everyone else. But here's the thing. If you go through enough of these exercises, you're going to find something really interesting. You start to retrain yourself on how you listen. You start listening for details that normally you don't pay all that much attention to, right? And what I wanted to point out with these exercises is we do this all the time, and oftentimes we do this unconsciously. When we're listening to someone, we tune out certain things because we're anticipating where the conversation is going to go. And sometimes when that conversation goes in a different direction, we're totally lost because we weren't paying attention to the right details. Does that make sense? And this is what we're going to go through today because I think in many ways our conversations with God, when we talk about listening to God, we run through the same exercise. We have this idea of how God's going to speak to us. Sometimes we anticipate what he's going to say or what we want him to say. And in that anticipation, we miss out on what God is really doing, on what God is really saying to us. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is God's will and how God communicates his will with us, with the idea that if we have that understanding in place, it will hopefully help us listen more clearly and avoid making wrong assumptions. So let's dive in. So when we talk about God's will, I want to start off and, and just share, we're going to talk about this a bit humbly. It's important to understand that we're talking about some very big ideas that some very big theologians and pastors and, and, and giants of our faith have discussed over the course of hundreds of years or centuries, and it is, there's a lot of rabbit trails that you can run down. There are a lot of nuances to this topic. But uh, at the same time, I think when we talk about this idea of God's will, you understand that even though there's a lot of nuances and a lot of ways that really smart people have dedicated themselves to try and figure out how to discern what God's will, you also understand that it shouldn't require a PhD for us to understand what God's will for us is. God spells it out in his word. And so there's a simplicity that can really get complicated if we make it so. And maybe it really is, but there's somewhere in there 
is this idea of what is God's will for our lives? What is God's will, period? And so we're going to walk through this, as, and I'm going to teach it as simply as I know how to do it. At the same time, you understand that to teach it simply means we're not going to be able to run down every possible rabbit trail there is in this. So are we good with that? That's, we'll start with that as a baseline. So the question today is, what is God's will, and how does knowing God's will affect how we listen to God? What is God's will, and how does knowing God's will affect how we listen to God? So we're going to answer with three or distinct responses, right? We're going to go through a big answer, a medium answer, and a small answer. That seems silly, but it's, it's the best way for me to frame it. So the big answer is going to be God's sovereign will. That is the big answer. So the big answer to the question of what is God's will, it begins with understanding that God has what's called a sovereign will. And what so God's sovereign will means is that we believe God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and God is present everywhere. That means God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And so what that means is if we believe that is true, that God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and he's present everywhere at once, what it means is whatever God wants to happen is going to happen, and nothing will stop it. That is what God's sovereignty means, that whatever God wants to happen is going to happen, and there is nothing that anything or anyone can do to stop it. Now, that, ha that sounds like a very simple idea, but there are a lot of implications to this, right? So if God's will is going to be to God's will, right? God's sovereignty means everything God wants to happen is going to happen and nothing can stop it. The questions that come up, some of them, are going to be, well, then does that mean God already knows everything that's going to happen? Is that another question? So will God violate our free will to get what he wants? And then what's the point of doing anything if everything's already decided by God? And there are a lot of other questions we can go into. You can see how this simple statement Simple, like, logical, oh, of course God can do whatever he wants and nothing's going to stop him. All of a sudden starts to become complicated when we think through the implications of it. So, which, which is, makes me love how in the Gospels, the author Matthew shares a story that might bring some clarity to this idea that whatever God wants to happen is going to happen, and yet there's nuance to how it happens. So in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, um, the, this is what he shares. So then Jesus went with them, them being the disciples, to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So this passage is happening, it's uh, on the night uh, right after the Last Supper, so it is in a few hours, so after the Last Supper, Jesus has gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. In just a few hours, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, and then he's going to be crucified. So that's the context of when this is happening. And so Jesus is, so uh, what I just share with you is what we know because we're looking back on the story. But in this moment in time, Jesus is the only one on the planet that knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be condemned. He knows he's going to be crucified, painfully die, and then rise from the dead three days later. And he dreads it. 
verse 39. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. It's really fascinating to think about Jesus the Son pleading with God the Father that the suffering he is about to endure would be taken away from him. That is Jesus' desire, but he surrenders to God's sovereign will. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's pleading with the Father that if there is another way for your sovereign will to be accomplished, could we take that road instead? That's in a sense what Jesus is saying. And what was God's sovereign will? Again, because we're looking back, it's clearer to see. God's sovereign will is that Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and then three days later rise from the dead so that salvation might be offered to the world. That sin which has separated mankind from God for all of these years with only the weak law to kind of bring people back now it's going, that restoration, that renewed relationship is going to happen. But for it to happen, it requires Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's the story of the gospel. And this wasn't something that God came up with on the spot. Even in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, you see hints of this already happening when, when after uh, Adam and Eve sin, you know, God speaks to the serpent and says, part of your curse is that Eve's offspring is going to crush your head. So Jesus, so God, this is no surprise. God knew this was going to happen. This is part of God's sovereign will. But get this. And again, I'm assuming most of us know the story of how Jesus is betrayed, arrested, crucified, and then rise from the dead three days later. To accomplish God's sovereign will, God uses a betrayer, he uses a weak ruler, he uses liars, and he uses a frenzied people. In other words, God uses sin and sinful people to accomplish his sovereign will. Isn't that interesting? So what does this mean? What this means for us is that it, we understand that God's sovereign will will always, God's sovereign will will always come to pass. It won't always be, however, the result of the direct actions of God. In this case, God did not make Judas betray Jesus. God did not force the religious leaders to demand Jesus' death. God was not the cause of their sin and their rebellion. But that being said, their sin, their rebellion, did not thwart God's sovereign plan. As a matter of fact, they helped fulfill it my point god's sovereign will means what god wants will always be accomplished it will always come to pass the means by which that happens is not always going to be what we expect or might think of god but that doesn't mean god's plan or god's will has gone off the rails in daniel chapter 4 the prophet shares this really interesting and cool observation about god he says, his rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, 
what do you mean by doing these things? So that's the first answer. We talk about the idea of God's will. We mean God's sovereign will. And what does this mean for us when we're thinking about how it applies to listening to God? What it means for us when we're thinking about how, what it, how we listen to God is that listening to God begins with humility. We have to come to God, seeking God, listening to God the right way. And the right way means that we approach him humbly. We recognize that we are just small, tiny, infinitesimally small parts of God's very big plan. We're just small actors in this universally grand play. However, God does not mean to imply that small means insignificant. Small doesn't mean unimportant. God values us. We're a necessary part. But when, and so we understand it just, we have to keep that in context. When we approach God, when we listen for his voice, we approach him with humility. We approach him with that's the big answer to what is God's will. Here's the medium answer, God's commanding will. When the Bible talks about God's will, there always seems to be layers involved. Not everything in the scriptures, when it's talking about God's will, is tied to God's sovereign will that cannot be stopped, cannot be derailed in any way, shape, or form. In fact, there are examples of God expressing his will in the scriptures through his commands that can be and often are disobeyed. An example that is found in the book of Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more if you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So, Paul is writing here to believers, and he's telling him, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to live the way Jesus has called us to live. Then he says, God's will for you is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Clearly, God says here, my will is for you believers to be holy. One manifestation of that holiness is to avoid all sexual sin. This is God's commanded will. That being said, Christians, sadly, do commit sexual sin. We are not always holy. We disobey God's clear directive. One chapter later, there's another example in 1 Thessalonians 5 when uh, God says, always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Pray without seeking. Ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It can't be any clearer than that. God is saying that his will for us is to rejoice always, never stop praying, and to be thankful in every circumstance. And yet there are many Christians, and even Christians in this room, who would have to admit that we are not always joyful. We are not unrelentingly in prayer. And we don't demonstrate thanks in every circumstance. There are other passages like this. I just, I, we're not going to go through because I, I want to make the point, and I'm hoping this is enough to clarify that point. When God talks about his will, 
it's not always in the big answer, God's sovereign will way. Sometimes it's reflected in a smaller, more practical commandment where God says, this is what I want for you so that you might live the way that I have called you to live. And yet, God gives us a measure of free will where we're able to not obey. We can choose to be defiant and sinful, not without consequences, but there are times when God has made known his will and we must choose to obey to be under his will. So what does that mean for us in listening to God? If we understand that this is also an aspect of God's will, God says, this is what I want for you, this is my will for you, and you choose to disobey, what does that mean for, or choose to obey or disobey, what does that mean in terms of us listening to God? It means that listening is imperative. It has to be a priority. The things that we've been teaching and going through these past few weeks, you would do well to learn, and I want to say that with all humility. If you want to live a life that pleases God, then you must make listening to God and obeying his command a priority. This is how we know him. So God's sovereign will teaches us that humility is our posture before him. And then God's commanding will teaches us that listening and obeying his commands are a priority. Finally, there's a small answer. And we'll call this one God's personal will, right? So God's sovereign will, God's commanding will, and now God's personal will. And there's one other way that God talks about his will. And before we want to go into that, I want to be clear that, again, don't take this misconception, right, wrongly, that the idea that small means insignificant. It does not mean insignificant. Small answer simply means that, and that's why I framed it this way, in context with the other two, this answer is small. In other words, this understanding God's personal will for your life is important, I'm sure, to all of us, but it is small, it, only, it can only exist in context to the other two. God's personal will has to do with what God wants for you. God's will for your life. Do you really believe that God went through all the trouble of putting you together, stitch by stitch, in your mother's womb, and then put you here on earth, in a specific time in history, in a very specific place in the world, for no reason? You think God put all that effort and intentionality into making you and setting you in this, in this world, in this moment of history, just randomly and for no purpose whatsoever? You've got to be kidding me. When we think, I say it to my kids all, you've got to be kidding me. Anyway, um, I shared earlier with you that we are all very small actors in a universally grand play. And if you take that analogy as understanding our place in God's will, right, in, in God's story, that we're just small bit actors in a very huge universally grand play. But we have lines, you know? And I think one of the most tragic things for Christians is to go through life and not know what our lines are. So when our moment comes where we're put front and center, it's like, here's your moment, say your lines, and we're like, I have no idea what they are. That's a shame. And so, yes, it is important to realize that God also has a personal 
will for us. In Acts chapter 17, God shares this. God began by making one person. And from him came all the different people who live everywhere in the world. God decided exactly when and where they must live. God wanted them to look for him and perhaps search all around for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Isn't this an amazing passage? God says, I've been intentional. I created you, and not only did I create you, I put you in this world in a very specific place in a very specific time. Why? Well, one of the big reasons is so you might discover me. You might find me, even though I'm not hiding, and I'm not far from you. Why has God done this? Because he has a plan for you, because you're a part of his will. So what is it then? What is God's personal will for you? Unfortunately, by the, uh, the answer is going to be rather unique for each of us, so I can't give you that answer. But I can tell you this, right? I don't know how to answer that for you specifically is what I'm trying to say. However, I'm going to say that discovering the answer to that question is going to be requ- will require two insights. The first one is how well you know yourself, and the second is how well you know God. So let me explain how those two things are going to be important, and then you can work at applying them into knowing and better knowing, right, God's personal will for your life. So let's start with knowing yourself. I'm going to be bold and say that you cannot discover God's personal will for your life unless you possess some degree of self-awareness. What is self-awareness? Self-awareness is basically the ability to understand why I feel what I feel and why I do what I do. Simple. That is self-awareness. Some of us go through life and we're like, I have no idea why I do the things I do. I have no idea why I feel the things I feel. Those are people who aren't very self-aware. And if you're not very self-aware, you're not going to be able to discover God's will for your life. Self-awareness is a crucial skill if we want to discover God's will for us. And it requires humility and it requires honesty. In the book of Galatians chapter 6, I love this passage. It says, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Do you understand what that passage is saying? If you really embrace this, those of us in this room who struggle with anxiety, depression, whatever, frustration, you, this should liberate you. Because what God is saying here is, hey, pay careful attention to your own work, to do the things that I have made you to do. That's where you're going to find your satisfaction and joy. And when you embrace that, you don't need to compare yourself with anyone else. Because you know what? I didn't create you to do what they do. I didn't create you to be like them. I didn't create you to live up to anyone else's expectations. I have a plan for you. And when you fulfill that, you will not only find satisfaction in how God has made you, but you will bring me joy as well. Because that's what I want for you. This is the life that we're called to live. And part of that is going to be knowing how God has created and crafted us. We've gone through this in more detail in previous teachings, and I can't go through it all. But part of that's going to be tied to your spiritual gifts. Part of it's going to be tied to your ministry. Part of it's tied to your personality and the way God has made you. There are a lot of things that come into that. And as a church, we'd love to come alongside and help. But at the end of the day, it does take your willingness to be humble and honest before God and to ask him and to seek 
and to make that a part of your spiritual journey. So secondly, discovering God's personal will is going to be tied to how well you know and understand God. How well you will allow God to shape you. Romans chapter 12 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I love this passage. And basically what God is sharing is that the secret to knowing God's will for you is to let him change the way you think. To transform you from who you were to who he wants you to be. You know, I've talked a lot about my kids over the course of the series, and I apologize if it's too much, but honestly, it's the easiest way for me to grasp this idea of of listening to God and what is God's will and uh, how to conceptualize how God's will works. So we're going there anyway. So my wife and I, we've, uh, we've known our kids since the day they were born. As their parents, from day one, When Josiah was born, even before he was born, my wife and I, we had a plan for their lives, that they would grow up to become godly adults who loved Jesus. And with each kid, it gets a little bit more specific, but that's not the point, and we don't need to share that with you. I just simply want you to know that globally, for the four of our children, we want them to become godly adults who love Jesus, and for Rocky, we just want him to obey, right? So that's kind of our plan as parents, our will for our children. Now, as parents, we understand that this doesn't just magically happen. It's not like we say, that's what we want for our kids, and boom, God, we said it, and it should happen. So that's not the way it works. There's an intentional process behind it. And so my wife and I, over the course of many, many years, have spoken godly values into our children's lives. We've used circumstances to train them and teach them. We even use their disobedience as opportunities to discipline, train, and teach, right, Uh, to reinforce those values. We set an example for them to follow. We've lived out those values in our own lives right in front of them. To all this to accomplish a singular goal. To raise our children to become godly adults who love Jesus. Now, we're not there yet. Our kids are not perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I want to tell you something really interesting because we happen to be, like some of you here, in a place where we can now see some of the fruit of that as our children are older, right? So when they were young, to obey, to make sure that our children were obedient, they needed to hear our voices all the time. We needed to communicate to them all the time, this is what dad wants you to do so that you can do right. But now that they're older, they're making a lot of right and godly choices without having to have mom and dad's voice in their ear all the time. And here's the thing, when our children now are doing good things and godly things, it has gotten to the point in their lives where they're not doing it anymore because dad and mom are telling them to. They're doing it because this is now what they value too. It's become a part of their natural value system, their lives. So a few examples, our children are honest. I love that. When they were young, the reason why they were honest is because they got disciplined twice if they lied to us, ever got busted lying. But today it's a part of who they are, and I'm grateful. That was something that my wife and I found was really valuable to instill. It was one of our number one, th- our number top things to instill 
in our children. Our children don't date. I don't hope this is not embarrassing you by saying that, right? Uh, they don't date, and, and believe it or not, they don't want to at this stage of the game because they know they aren't ready to be in that type of relationship yet. That doesn't mean they don't like guys and just I like girls or anything like that. It doesn't mean that they're not attracted to people. It doesn't mean there's anything weird about them, though it might be. You know, they are our kids after all. Um, but it means their desires have come to where this is not even something I want right now because I know I'm not ready for it. I know that's not something that in this time is good for me. So I can give a number of different examples, but you get the point, right? Our kids are far from perfect, but the values that my wife and I, especially when they were young, had to speak into and pray over them, discipline into, set the example on and otherwise instilled, has now become a natural part of their lives. And that is what God is talking about here in Romans chapter 12. That don't copy the ways of the world. Let God transform you by changing the way you think. And that begins with us learning how to listen, choosing to listen, choosing to put ourselves under the authority of God. And even when his commandments don't always make sense, or they're not comfortable, or they're not easy to do, we're going to obey anyway. And over time, what's going to happen is if we consistently seek to have that posture of obedience before God and let hearing his voice, allowing to speak to us, then it's going to come to a point where it just becomes a part of our lives. It becomes a natural part of what we believe. This is the transformation that God is talking about. This is what it means to become a new creation. This is who you once were. Let me speak into your life, listen to me, and over time you're going to become someone different, someone better, someone who's fulfilling their God-given potential. That is what God wants for you, and as a church, this is what we want for your life as well, for you to become conformed to the image of Christ and fulfill your God-given potential. Because we believe, and, and I, God says, right, your life is going to be better for it. In fact, you can't even imagine how the life God has for you is going to be so much superior to what you have now or what you, who you were before. I want to share one final passage because I know we need to wrap. This passage is found in the book of Matthew. And uh, in this passage, Jesus is looking out and he's seeing people who are making this decision, having to choose between whether or not I'm going to obey and follow and those who are not. And he sees many who are choosing to, well, that sounds great, Jesus, but that's not for me. And this is what Jesus shares. He actually quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Matthew 13, verses 15 and 16. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. You see that contrast? God's not saying that I'm choosing to speak to some and not to others. He's saying I'm speaking, but there's so many of you who are choosing to close your eyes, to shut your ears, and to distance your heart. And if you do that, I can't heal you. I can't restore you. But blessed are those who have opened their eyes to see and opened their ears to hear. And I pray that that would be who we are as a church. 
I'm excited about this series. I pray that you guys have been blessed. I want to tell you that on the preparation side, it has been a fun challenge walking through this. I told my wife just the other night, I wish we had more time. I could have, we could have easily doubled the weeks that we spoke on this, and yet this is the time we have. And uh, I pray that it's been meaningful and uh, fruitful for you all. We're going to close out our series next week. And one of the things that's really going to be cool is the one closing it out is going to be one of our deacons, uh, Stephen Freeman. And we're excited about him having the opportunity to close out our series and speak to you all and share with you all what it looks like to follow. Right? Now that we hear his voice, hearing is not enough. Hearing requires obedience as well for God's will and purpose to be fulfilled in our lives. I'm excited about having you all being able to hear and be encouraged and refreshed um, and challenged by what is shared next week. It's going to be amazing. So let me pray and close this out today. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to share this morning on your will. And God, knowing that there is so many different layers to this and it is much more complex and challenging and beautiful than even I was able to share today, and yet, God, I pray that as saints, we would have this desire to seek out your will and to obey and follow you wherever it is that you may choose to lead us, Lord. I pray that we would submit humbly to your sovereign will, not like we had any choice anyway, because it's going to happen whether we resist or not, uh, or obey or not, but uh, Lord, I do pray that understanding your sovereign will helps us to come before you with bowed spirits and humility, realizing how small we are. Pray that when you share your commanded will, that we would obey, knowing that these commands are not given to torture, torment us, or to make our lives difficult, but for our good. And that we would obey, and finally, Lord, that we would pursue what your personal will is for our lives, to discover what it is that our part in this grand play is, and to be able to speak our lines with confidence and joy, Lord, to be able to fulfill our God-given potential, knowing that you've made us intentionally and uniquely. We love you so much. We're so excited about being your kids, and we're so excited that this life of faith that you called us to is so creative and, and exciting, and sometimes we can just miss it because we get caught up in the mundane, but God, it is it is beautiful and amazing and dynamic, this journey of faith that you called us to. And I pray that as saints, as your children, we would choose to walk that road and experience all that you have for us. In Jesus' name.